Please remain standing for the gospel lesson, which comes from John chapter 6, beginning at verse 51. Hear now the gospel of the Lord. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Our forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Long before Joshua, another military commander who had a vivid sense of the coming promised land, the land that Canaan pointed to, lay dying on a Sabbath day. This general had always wanted to die on the Sabbath. For, he said, like the land, the Sabbath too is a sign, a type, a picture of our coming glorious eternal rest. Thomas Stonewall Jackson had been shot a week earlier by his own men at the Battle of Chancellorsville. His last words were, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Well, Joshua does not die young, and he does not die at the hands of his own men. But having led Israel across the river, into Canaan, he's about to cross the great river and enter into his eternal rest here in Joshua chapter 23. Now last words, especially the last words of famous people, seem to hold quite a fascination to us. I think somehow we think they're supposed to be meaningful and profound Of course, this can put a lot of pressure on the dying person. (laughs) The, The Mexican revolutionary general Pancho Villa said, his last words were, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. Uh, But but, uh, Joshua's words are different than most famous last words. In two respects, really. Uh, First, he's little concerned with himself. You'll notice in the text that his death is simply a matter of impending fact. I'm a very old man, he says. 
I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And second, he has long-term, you know, looking out across generations, long-term instructions and warnings to give to the nation about its future. He dies with his primary concern being the future of the church of God. This is an extraordinary thing. His own death is small in his eyes. That is, that is a type of greatness, right? Great, there's a greatness of soul, a magnanimity in men and women. And one of the ways it is seen is that their own death is small. And so I want to look at Joshua's famous last words, his farewell under three headings. They're there in the outline, the, the land, the threat, and the charge. The land, the threat, the charge. So first, the land. He summons the leaders of the nation. He says, I'm old. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord has done to all these nations in Canaan. You've received this land all the way from the Jordan to the Mediterranean, he says. The great sea is the Mediterranean. The Lord, he tells them, has given you rest from your enemies all around. Land and rest. They go together. So in verse 9, he picks up this theme of God. God is warrior who fights for Israel. The Lord has driven out. Before you, great and powerful nations, he says. No one is able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord fights for you just as he promised. Later, he says in verses 14 and 15, and we saw this last week, you know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises of the Lord your God have failed. Every promise, he says, has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. And so what Joshua is doing here, and remember, he's dying. What he's doing here is engaging in a kind of holy remembering. It's, it's a holy rehearsing of all the Lord's good gifts. And this, beloved, is how saints should speak when they come to die. And we'll speak this way in death if we speak this way in life. So it's vital to our spiritual health to cultivate this sort of disposition, this grateful remembering of the Lord's goodness. It's a bedrock feature of true devotion and piety to remember aright. Psalm 103, for example, Psalm 103 spurs us to do this. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. And then what does the text say? And forget not all His benefits. And then the psalmist goes on to articulate those benefits. And so this means we must speak. There is no mute praise. We must speak it. We must declare it. We must rehearse the history of God's fidelity to his covenant. This is a, the cure for our forgetfulness. 
Because our forgetfulness is, is really often a, a form of ingratitude. It is ungrateful for us to forget what God, who he is and what he's done. And so we have to, as Joshua is doing here, declare these things, but also we have to declare them to the next generation. That's what Joshua is doing here. Psalm 78, for example, is dedicated to just this very theme, declaring the works of God to the children of the next generation. Because the church of Jesus Christ lives by speaking, by confessing, by declaring the abundant goodness of God from one generation to the next generation. Now notice something else about this kind of gratitude on display in Joshua's last words. It is a decidedly um, national gratitude. It's corporate, a kind of corporate gratitude. And what I mean by that is that it's not suspended on our own personal fates and fortunes. I mean, after all, Joshua's dying. So this sort of gratitude is rooted in all the way back in the promises God made to the patriarchs. Think of that. It's grounded in the covenant. And it looks forward out to the long-term purposes of the everlasting and immortal God. It knows that he's going to guard and defend and prosper his plan for Israel. He's going to build his church. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. It's sober gratitude. It realizes generations can be lost. Centuries, like four in Israel's case, can be swallowed up in Egyptian bondage. Individuals can die in battle. Courts can declare that the Holy Scripture is bigoted. But God is ever faithful. And if our gratitude then, our rehearsing, our confessing, doesn't take this shape, if it's not tied to the promises of a holy nation in a holy land, enjoying a holy rest, then our gratitude shrinks down. It'll wither. You might think, well, why, why will it wither? Well, what happens is whole swaths, whole tracts of the Bible, the grand sweeping narrative of God's kingdom is now unable to move us to praise because we're thankful in general when things are going well with us and those we know and love and we're kind of not so thankful when they're not going well with us and those we know and love. But this kind of gratitude lifts us out of that into the grand sweeping purposes of God's fidelity to the covenant. But, you know, this is our history, right? If this is our history, if these are our forebearers in the faith, as I've said before, if this is your ancestry.com, then this history which Joshua rehearses points to our destiny in Christ, the greater Joshua. And this history becomes a source, an endless source really, of praise, which opens up for us. I, maybe we can get at this a, a little differently by putting it this way. By asking ourselves, when was the last time in praising God that we celebrated the things Joshua celebrates here? 
I mean, have, have we ever given thanks to God for the conquest of the land? For the promises to Abraham? For the faithfulness to Israel? I mean, that seems far away from us, right? It seems detached. But we have to ground our gratitude in these unthwartable purposes of God in Christ for His body. For these are the only things that will remain and the only things that will matter when we come to die. So this is what I like to call big picture gratitude. Gratitude that is independent of us. Another way to say this is we need to think more. We need to realize that God is not so much a part of our story as you are a part of his story. It's not so much that God comes into our lives and makes them better. It's that God calls us to die and be joined to Jesus Christ and be joined to his narrative. There's only one narrative in the history of the world. It's the narrative of God's faithfulness to Israel, which culminates in Jesus Christ and into which you and your narrative are baptized. It's only one important story. As an aside here, the whole evangelical testimony culture tends to erode this because it places the emphasis on our narratives. Here's my narrative. It wasn't a really good narrative. God came into my narrative. Now my narrative is a better narrative. Right? With an, here's what the New Testament says. Here's what needs to happen to your narrative. It needs to be crucified. Right? And so this is a wonderful thing. This is liberation. This joins us to the, to the, the unthwartable purposes of God, to gratitude that's not going to wither. It's not that God doesn't love us as individuals or care about our lives. Of course he does. It's just that the center of gravity is his narrative in Jesus Christ. And so the second point then is the threat, that there's a threat here. The nations are conquered, but they're not obliterated. There's a promise that still remains. You can see it in verse 5. The Lord your God will push them out. He'll drive them out and you'll take possession of the land. And so this is a promise that still requires Israel's long-term obedience. So it's a promise which has a sort of underside, like a shadow side, which is a threat. And you can see this threat very clearly in verses 12 through 13. If you turn away, Joshua says, and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, if you intermarry then the Lord's not going to drive them out. That Joshua says they'll become snares, traps, uh, whips, thorns, until you perish from the good land the Lord has given you. Now this is a farewell address that has now taken a very sober turn. You know, the people are gathered around your bedside. They're looking for some inspirational words. And here's a very sober warning. With his last breath, Joshua warns. He realizes that for all of the Lord's goodness, Israel is not out of danger. Right? The land is not Israel's. And your coming land, your heavenly inheritance is not, is not ours by some sort of natural ethnic right. There's a sense in which Joshua is saying, yes, the Lord's given you rest, but your rest better be vigilant and alert and working rest. Because he says in verse 16, if you violate the covenant, 
If you go and serve other gods, the Lord's anger will burn and you'll perish off this good land. Now again, he's not saying one or two or even three acts of disobedience are in view here, but a sustained, willful abandonment of the covenant forsaking the true God for idols. Where this happens over a long period of time, and beloved, remember this, it did happen. This is no idle threat. This is exactly what happened to Israel. And then Joshua says, if this happens, like the Canaanites before you, you're going to be expelled from the land. So, I want to say a couple things about the nature of this threat, because I think the threat's relevant for the church in our day. First, note this. The dangers of peace can be greater than the dangers of war. When you're fighting, you know, you tend to be focused. Now they've achieved a good measure of success. And then the dangers arise. The dangers to the church in prosperity. The dangers to the church when it's in a sort of majority position. The church holding sway in the land. Those dangers can be subtle, but they can be devastating. Right? The debate over marriage was not lost in the last 10 years. It was lost at least in the 60s, if not well before that. It can be argued that it was lost in a corrupted notion of freedom. And a notion of freedom which is deep in our traditions. Where freedom is not freedom from sin, freedom to service, freedom for virtue, Freedom for goodness, but simply an abstract notion to be free to do whatever one likes. Right, 23 years ago, before the most recent court decision on gay marriage, the same, the same Chief Justice, Anthony Kennedy, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992, said this. He said, at the heart of liberty... Now, now get this. This is the highest court in the land telling us what the heart of freedom is. He said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Well, if that's what the heart of liberty is, then the courts can do pretty much anything. That is a highly corrupted notion of freedom. And so these debates are, are lost when love becomes detached from truth, from the law of God, from the concrete embodiment of male and female. It's lost when children are viewed as boutique items to be added to lives primarily devoted to adult fulfillment. It's lost when sex is torn from the covenant and primarily viewed as friction, separated from fruitfulness. These things didn't happen yesterday. They didn't happen five years ago or ten years ago. They've been happening for a long time. It's lost when the human being, the human person is no longer viewed 
as the sacred, inviolable image of God, bearing an intrinsic dignity, having rights and privileges which precede any court or any state's decrees. All of these losses, and many, many, many more losses, occurred during times of relative peace and prosperity for the church in the United States. The dangers of peace are real, and they can be devastating. Put this in more personal terms. Having been saved, having confessed Christ, having come, if you will, into Canaan, the remaining unconquered territory in our souls can still be lethal. The remaining enemies within and without. The land is full of Canaanite evangelists. Evangelists for sexual freedom urging you to worship at their barren and bloody altars. And so the danger here is not seeing the danger. It's a kind of complacency. We become indulgent and tolerant of our own sin. And so there's a failure, or there can be anyway, to move on to maturity, to move from mere salvation to this harder, arduous work of sanctity and conformity to Christ. But this is the key thing about the threat. The fail to fight, the failure to fight, is not, it is not to remain where you are. There's no remaining where you are in the Christian life. There's fighting, cutting your way forward by blows, or there's sliding back dangerously. There's no standing in the same spot. That's why it is called in Scripture drifting. And drifting is perilous because it's often noticed too late. You know that tragic recent story of those two boys in that fishing boat off of Florida, right? They probably didn't know. They're drifting, but they don't notice they're drifting. And at some point they get some awful feeling that they've lost touch with the shoreline. And it's too late. It's too late. It's very hard to correct years of drifting. The, the writer to the book of Hebrews says, to New Testament Christians, he says, if Israel, if Israel did not escape, they didn't escape, right? They went into exile. He says, how shall we escape if we've had such great salvation proclaimed to us? That same writer says, you have greater blessings, greater security, a better covenant. But he also says that means the warnings to, to us in the new covenant are more fierce. The threats are greater. Just read the warnings about falling away in the book of Hebrews. They're terrifying. I, I don't, I'm not making these threats up. I don't like threats any more than you guys do. But we need threats because we're sluggish. And, and slow, and dull, and bent in on ourselves. We're wayward children, so we need threats. Fatherly threats, threats in love to be sure, but the Bible's full of threats. And notice this, Israel only lost the land, tragic as it was. But in Christ, we're in danger of losing what the land symbolizes. Namely, our eternal inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a, a bit of a paradox. 
We have greater blessings, greater access, greater joy in the new covenant. But the threats to us are also greater because there's more at stake. That's essentially what the whole book of Hebrews says. And the remedy in Hebrews is this. He says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Look, it's not like we haven't heard it. We've heard it and heard it, heard it, heard it, heard it. But the writer says, hey, look, you need to start paying attention much, much, much closer to the stuff that you have in the past heard. Attend to it, he says, lest, the writer says, we drift from it. Drift is the, is the fundamental problem here. And that brings us to the third point, And it's Joshua's charge. Joshua doesn't just threaten. He tells us what to do. And here I'm going to make three sub-points. The first one is love. Love, Scripture, and separation are the three. In verse 11 he says, Be very careful to love the Lord your God. We are desiring creatures. Creatures made for love. We are going to love something. And if we don't love and delight in and enjoy the Lord, then we will love other gods. In this sense, there are no atheists. There are no non-loving beings. Beings who don't love. And there are no beings who love who don't have gods. And so... Joshua says, be careful to love the Lord. And we have to strip away these false and sentimental notions of love. Of course, it may be more corrupt than the word freedom is in our culture. We all know that love is not primarily a feeling or an emotion, though, of course, those things follow. Those things are involved. But Jesus says this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So love is kind of enacted fidelity. Enacted fidelity to the ever-lovely and beautiful God of the covenant. Right? This love is lawful. It is the first commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord your God. This is one of the unique things about Christianity. In the end, love and law are the same thing. Christianity commands us to love. And the command is sweet because God himself is love. The lawgiver hangs broken on a tree. This love conquers death. So here's the Twitter reference for those of you who can get it. (laughs) Hashtag love of the Lord wins. It's an adjustment to a recent Twitter theme. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the great uh, 17th century British poet John Donne talks about this desiring aspect of loving the Lord in one of his holy sonnets. He's, uh, he's speaking about his desire to love God. We want to love God, but we find it hard sometimes. And, and Dunn says this, and this is magnificent. He says, but I am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Take me to you 
imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Right, this, this is a man who understands that we're desiring creatures and God has to imprison and enthrall and ravish your heart or you will not be free. It's magnificent. And notice our text here. It assumes that this is difficult, that we're easily distracted by other loves. Look at this. The text says, be very careful to love the Lord your God. That's very countercultural. I thought love just sort of happens. I thought you didn't have to chaperone it at all. Who says, hey, be very careful to love your, you know, significant other? Sounds weird, doesn't it? Be very careful to love the Lord your God. Yeah, be very careful to love the Lord your God. Because you're, we tend to love other gods. Because love is not sentiments. And so you have to be, as the kids say, intentional about this. By the kids, I mean young evangelicals. They love that word, intentional. It's a good word. You have to be intentional. Because it's just not going to automatically happen. So it's a love that has to be cultivated. Again, be not just careful, right? Be very careful to love the Lord your God. This is it remarkable? So you have to cultivate it. I mean, a couple of things that I would suggest here in concretely cultivating this are the use of the Psalms. I always encourage people who come to me and say, I'm having trouble reading the Bible. What do I do? Where do I start? I say, read the Psalms. Right? If you're struggling through the book of Joshua or Leviticus or something, go back to the Psalms. If you haven't read the Bible in three weeks or three years, read the Psalms. If you don't know which psalm to read, what's today? The 16th? The 16th. Read Psalm 16. So I tell, and then you can read every 30th psalm because there's 150 of them. So you can read 46, 76, 106, 136. Five a day, you're through the whole psalm, psalter in one month. I do this all the time, especially if I get lost in my own devotions. I encourage you to do it. Because the Psalms are what John Calvin called an anatomy of all the soul. They're going to unpack your soul, your emotional life, your interior life, your loves, your desires. Go to them. So you might say, well, how am I supposed to be very careful to love the Lord your God? Here's how. Read the Psalms. If you don't have a little leather, black paper, uh, uh, book of prayers, Puritan prayers called the Valley of Vision, get it. Read it when you read the Psalms. The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. Everyone should have it. It'll help you to pray as you read the Psalms. Take the prayer sheet that's on the table and use Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, those two short little prayers by Paul. Use them to guide your own prayer life. Learn how the Apostle prays. Be very careful. To love the Lord your God. And the second thing Joshua enjoins here is scripture. Again, verse 8. 
Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Notice this um, matching uh, sort of um, echo. Be very careful to love the Lord is matched by be careful to obey all that is written. So again, there's, there's no loving God without an engagement, passionate engagement with Scripture. I cite him all the time. I'll cite him again. The 4th century church father, Jerome, said this, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. How are we to show the care, the diligence needed to love God? We have to attend to this word in season and out. And the third point is separation. Verse 7, don't associate with these nations that remain among you. Don't invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. doesn't matter what they're called. doesn't matter if they're called democracy, tolerance, love, being on the right side of history. doesn't matter what the gods are called. Don't dally at Canaanite mixers. Because their gods are ever-present. And they're attractive, these gods, because their gifts are immediate. Their way is easy. Their way is very easy. Have you ever noticed that these gods never call for repentance? (laughs) There There are no gods out there on television who say, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But the end is the way of death. And so you're called to come out of a kind of Babylonian impurity and idolatry which has drenched the culture. We'll say more about this, Lord willing, over the the fall and into next year when I hope to preach on the book of Revelation. And we'll have a lot to say about Babylonian culture. But Scripture says, go out from the midst and be separate. Don't touch any unclean thing. I will welcome you as a a son and a daughter. So this is a challenging address. Turns out that Joshua has a lot to say. But remember, we don't hear it the way Israel did. The greater Joshua has come. He's given us a greater inheritance, a better covenant. And it's very, very important for us to see this. Not Joshua, not Israel, but Jesus alone has been very careful to love the Lord God with his whole being. Jesus and no one else has been careful to obey every word that has come from the mouth of God. Jesus and no one else has been fully separated from evil and consecrated to obedience. And Jesus and no one else has borne the curses against us for our violations of the covenant. And so we don't hear the text the way Joshua spoke it to the nation. We listen in Jesus, by His grace, on the firm foundation of His fidelity, under His mercy as our high priest. That is how the text summons us and calls us. But it does call us. Because the greater privileges call us to greater watchfulness and diligence. So be very careful. Be very careful to love the Lord. Be careful to obey his word. Cut off all enemies within and without. Israel failed to do this. And they lost the land. You have a much greater reward. Don't lose it. Amen.